You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The most popular spectator sport in America is not the Super Bowl or the Olympics or the World Series or the Heavyweight Championship. It's the beauty pageant. From the moment she's born, every girl is eligible. All it takes is a pretty face, a little talent, a lot of luck, and a great big smile. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile. Smile. The story of a teenage beauty pageant. The girls who enter it. The people who run it. And what it does to a small American town. Just be yourselves. And keep smiling. I know y'all came to see a whale of a show. And a whale of a show it is. Wow, any real lookers this year? Oh, you men. Our club has spent a lot of time and money trying to help these young people become responsible adults. <laughs> Rotting maggots of death. Everything counts up here. Your grades, your personality, the judges' conference. Select a girl that you would be proud to have as your own daughter. What would you do if your best friend was unwed and pregnant? Excuse me? Could you tell us why you think you'd like to go into missionary work? I like helping people. That's what this game is all about. I want to be a veterinarian or a nun. You didn't jump up and down enough when Miss Woodland won. Beauty contest judges like their emotions big. She is here, I hear my... My God, I've smiled so much my gums are raw. Well, put some Vaseline on your teeth. It helps your... <laughs> Listen to me. It helps your lips glide You're over. You're kidding me. No, all the girls do it. I can see why you want to help these girls. They seem very uh, worthwhile. Oh, my God! Right on, son. We're not really competing with each other. We're more friends. We have faith. We have hope. It's a competition. Now, if you just keep smiling, you can win. Smile, what's the use of crying? It's every parent's hope and every girl's dream to be all an American girl should be and wear that winning smile. Just smile. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me this week is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Good evening, folks. Also back with us this week is Ms. Carol Borden. Hi, everybody. This week we are looking at the 1975 film Smile. Directed by Michael Ritchie and written by Jerry Belson, the film tells the tale of the Young American Miss Beauty Contest in Santa Rosa, California. Along with the story of the beauty contest is the tale of Big Bob Freelander, a local RV salesman played by Bruce Dern, his friend Andy, played by Nicholas Pryor, and Andy's wife Brenda, played by Barbara Feldon. The film plays in that sprawling, character-driven realm made famous by Robert Altman in films like Nashville, which was released just a scant month before Smile. Before we dive in here, I wanted to let folks know that we will be getting to spoiler territory on this episode, so if you haven't seen the film, go ahead, turn us off. 
track it down and come back after you've watched Smile. Now, if you're still with us, Kevin, I want to start with you. When was the first time that you saw Smile and what did you think? I first saw Smile at the local art rep cinema in Newark, Delaware, when I was in college. So this would have been in sort of repertory cinema run uh, 78 or 79, about five years after its initial theatrical release. And I just thought it was great. I had been a fan of Bad News Bears, uh, but this one really seemed to hit it out of the park in terms of its social satire, in terms of its very, very deft characterization of the uh you know of the repertory cast uh, it really made me a huge michael ritchie fan how about you carol uh i actually saw it the first time for this podcast i thought it was very interesting the way that you could follow different characters through the story so i actually watched it twice for this and the first time i sort of followed more robin and doria and the girls who were competing to be young american miss and then the second time i followed more the adult storylines of the JCs who were holding the beauty pageant. And when did you watch it just for the outfits and uh, decor? Oh, yeah, that was very distracting. The first time I watched it, it took me a little while to start paying attention to people because of the outfits and the decor. It's so 1975. Oh, God, yes. It is glorious in the way that it looks. Never have so many different shades of avocado appeared in one film. Oh, did you guys rewatch it and discover whether Bruce Stern is wearing a dark plum that is brownish plaid on plaid shirt a uh, uh, suit or a brown on brown plaid? I think it's brown on brown, but we'll need to for the you know the Blu-ray or the 4K to come out before we know for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm really hoping Criterion picks this one up and and does the proper restoration. Well, you know the thing about the costumes and the sets is I think even contemporaneously they had a sense of the ghastliness of, of contemporary fashions. It, it, as a matter of fact, there are even notes in the script talking about how the particular interior design of a particular place or the, the costume of, of a person is just a little bit too much. So I think I saw this one, pretty sure I saw it on VHS. I might have seen it on... TV. I know that I do have a copy of it from TCM, which uh, unfortunately for you, Kevin, is the uh, full version of the film, boobies and all. Yeah, it's not the the, the cut up version with the hilarious uh, substitute swearing. No melon farmers in this one. But as I recall, they took out all of uh, Freddie's lines in the in the film. Boy, I sure got something I'd like to bake in her field, and all that stuff was all taken out. And apparently, it's a laugh riot for people who know the film. It's sort of Bowdlerized version. I think it was uh, screened a lot on USA back in the in the eighties, as I recall. Yeah, this one for a long time was tough to see. I remember, and and so that's why I'm really trying to to put my finger on exactly when was the first time that I saw it, and it probably was. Sometime in the mid-90s, I think my friend Richard might have turned me on to this. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I saw it all these years ago and just kind of fell in love with it. And then it was one of these movies where I'm just like, why aren't more people talking about this film? And now that I finally have the soapbox on which to stand, I'm going to talk about this film some more because I find it to be absolutely fascinating. It is a, a great study of all of these different characters and it's one of these very masterful films where you can pay attention to different characters as you're going through it and everybody seems to get very equal weight as far as us following their narratives and it's great that we have this 
young American Miss contests that were setting everything against and seeing the young American Miss contestants. Some of them are very familiar faces. When you go in here, you'll see a lot of people that you recognize. And then there are a lot of faces that you don't recognize. And I found that the way that they focus on which contestants, mostly the professional actresses, that was great and it it really kind of reminded me of some of the work of like uh, uh foreman where he would uh set up things where there were professional actors and then non-professional actors and kind of play them off one another and just get these great performances from people who weren't necessarily even acting and then the people that you do have in here acting are just phenomenal especially bruce dern i mean bruce dern you could say he's the star of the film and his name definitely is the biggest on the poster but the everybody has so much weight with their characters that he falls right in line with the rest of the folks that are in here and you can watch the film multiple times and notice the accents and the beats on uh, all the major characters bruce dern as big bob barbara feldon as brenda michael kidd as the uh, the choreographer tommy uh nicholas pryor as andy that they're all quite meticulously crafted performances that sometimes get lost in the sort of comic tidal wave of of gags and and word plays and ironic juxtapositions and uh grotesquerie but they're all quite measured and beautifully done when the film looks absolutely gorgeous, I mean, it was shot by Conrad Hall, who we've talked about on the program many times before, who's done just a terrific job. I know for me personally, his work in Electric Light and Blue was just phenomenal. But in this, it also looks great. And it also kind of shows Michael Ritchie's documentary background. And because we do have so much of this kind of verite or fake verite, this is shot very much, some of it is shot like a documentary. And even when we're not in those documentary scenes, when we're in more of the narrative things, we definitely feel like we're kind of a fly on the wall for a lot of this film. I think some of the performances for the Young American Misses, like um, Joan Prather's Rob, and sort of disappear because it seems so much like it's cinema verite. It seems like a documentary. They seem so much like young teenage girls, even in, in their strange talent shows and, and the way they interact with one another. But they're not. They're actresses. And you were saying before, Kevin, that that it was all meticulously scripted. And, and Mike, you were saying that they even down to the strange performances they give for the talent competition in the Young American Miss contest are were crafted and created. They didn't even just use talents that the young women who were performing these roles had. They had to learn these talents to perform them and then perform them like awkward teenage girls. But that's great because the awkwardness of some of the non-professional performances come through as method awkwardness. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, and I think um, one of the, the things that I really like about this film is that it's never mean. It's a satire, but it's sympathetic to every single character in it. And it's not showing this awkwardness in a nasty way, but in a humanizing way. I think Jeffrey Lewis's character of, of Wilson, the, the president of the event, and his yeah. pusillanimity is that a word? Uh, his, his cowardly, self-protecting Sexist uh, bastardness. Yeah, right. Sexist bastardness. Uh, uh, so, and there are a few characters who really sort of end up looking bad, but it's not a, a scabrous, hateful film. When I rewatched Bad News Bears recently, another Michael Ritchie film, I was struck by many of the similarities in tone between the two. I'd always remembered Smile as being just a little bit nastier, a little bit meaner, but there is a 
great gentleness and sympathy with which uh, Richie and certainly uh, Belson in the screenplay treats most of the characters in the film. Or at least the characters who are suffering the most, I think, which is significant. We start off over the logo coming up and everything with the voice of Colleen Camp, and she is our first contestant that we see. She's in one of these regional areas where she's her talent, her special talent, is packing a suitcase and doing it very well. And I like that we get this kind of commentary from the judges who are looking on and saying that it's the only thing that she could do without falling off the stage, which is kind of a foreshadowing for later on for Annette O'Toole. But with Colleen Camp, she's making this whole presentation about packing the suitcase and you know always put your naughtiest nighty on top and all this and then we go from that she wins the contest and we have this great line from the judges again just like you know uh, how great her tits are and just kind of immediately we're seeing what kind of world we're entering into where that's definitely going to play a factor when it comes to this i mean there's even like Right towards the end, we get some, you know, did you check out the knockers on that girl kind of thing. And then it's great because Colleen Camp is one of many people that is flying out to this uh, contest in Santa Rosa. And we see her on the tarmac at the airport and her suitcase is falling apart. You know, there's just all this stuff. She's stuffing all this stuff back into it. So obviously it is all completely artifice, her whole idea of the art of packing a suitcase because she can't even do it herself. (laughs) Just that's our, our nice intro to this whole thing. And then you get that wonderful Nat King Cole smile song over, which comes back again at the end to kind of bookend everything. And it was just, I love the way that this starts and we get introduced to these characters. And like I said, there are some very familiar faces, you know, Annette O'Toole is in here and Melanie Griffith and uh, Colin Camp, of course. And yeah, Joan Prather, Denise Nickerson. And Denise Nickerson was one of these characters where I probably saw this movie three or four times before I finally looked up who she was because... I was like, I just, I know this person. It was like one of those games that I would play with myself where it's like, I know this person. I'm not going to look them up. Who is this person? And then finally I had to look her up and realize that she was Violet Beauregard from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I was like, oh, okay. But having aged, what, 10 years or something between those two performances, if well, if even that, I have to look up the dates. But she's definitely entered her own uh, at this point in her career. Well, when I saw the film in my college years in the late seventies, the beauty contest as a social institution among people who went to college and thought about stuff that we thought it was a dying gasp, you know, that maybe they would have these things for one or two more years, but that eventually even Santa Rosa would wise up to the retrograde sexism and stuff like that. There in the late 70s, during the the Carter Interregnum, we really did have a sense among a lot of liberal folks that a lot of these reactionary social institutions were on their way out and and the the raucous delight in seeing all of these myths punctured and exposed was was really quite palpable in the theater. I mean, audiences just went nuts, laughing, rolling in the aisles at certain points in the film. Uh, now we look at America and we see this two nations of red states and blue states and small town folks and uh, people who live elsewhere. And it seems sort of baked into our cultural life that there's going to be a large number of people who are going to hold on desperately to these retrograde social beliefs and social institutions. And the more that they're 
outside of history's ash can uh, is limited, the more fervently they'll cling to them. Uh, so it was a totally different sort of mindset to see it in a sort of college town, countercultural art theater context in uh, in 1978, I think, than it is in, in seeing on video today. There's the line in here about... Boys get money and scholarships oh, for making a lot of touchdowns, right? Yeah. Why shouldn't a girl get one for being cute and charming? Yeah, but maybe boys shouldn't be getting money for making touchdowns. Which is a nice way that really turns the whole idea on its head, because we just take for granted that boys are going to make money by making touchdowns. And I love that she questions that rather than questioning the whole idea of girls making money by being cute. But also, this is a couple of years, well, about a year and a half before Bad News Bears. And in Bad News Bears, they completely skewer and savagely mock this institution of Little League Baseball. So that business about the way boys are socialized into sports is something that Richie already has on his back burner to take on next. Really looking at his filmography in those early years, and I know that this wasn't necessarily by choice because he had a lot of projects that he was working on that didn't necessarily come to fruition, but looking at those early films with Downhill Racer and Smile and the Bad News Bears and Semi-Tough, I mean... Okay, Smile is about a beauty contest, but yet it is a competition. And then all of these other films are about competitions as well. And it's just interesting. And even The Candidate is a competition. Yes. And it's interesting that he had all of these films right out of the gate, with the only exception really being Prime Cut, which we talked about in an earlier episode. And that one, there are definitely some elements in there as well when it comes to the treatment of women that could be seen as playing into what Smile is going to do now. Prime Cut, when you mention those list of films, it seems to stick out like a sore thumb because it's a, a gruesome gangster film where the opening scene uh, they run a guy through the sausage machine at the factory because he's on the, in the wrong criminal gang. But there's that astonishing scene near the end where the drugged up, trafficked women, including a 16 year old sissy SpaceX, uh, are paraded nude in front of these these people and and sold literally on the hoof. And the juxtaposition in that film is, of course, between uh, the prime cuts of meat. And then the the trafficking in the trafficking in women and drugs, uh, and I certainly think that a couple of the more gruesome and degrading spectacles of these women being paraded around naked and trafficked and exchanged between men certainly seems to look forward to Smile just a, a couple of years later. As I said, when I when I saw Smile and the Bad News Bears, I was pretty much hooked on on his movies, and I sort of did a a deep dive into as much of his stuff that I, as I could find during the early days of video. And although he doesn't get screenwriting credit on any of his films, in other words, as the screenwriter, and all the films that we talk about all had a different screenwriter, uh, he seems to have been very much in the process of building the script up. As a matter of fact, uh, in The Candidate, Redford and Richie and the credited screenwriter, can't remember who that is, but he, he won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay for this film. Uh, they all worked on the script together. Uh, oh, Jeremy Larner, it was. That eventually won Best Screenplay at the Academy Awards. But 
Richie seemed to be involved in the crafting of these stories. And I see a lot of these sort of remarkable similarities between a lot of these films that we have a, we have a contestant and then we have someone who's, who's brought in to help them somehow, some sort of, some sort of helper figure in uh, downhill racer. Uh, uh, Robert Redford is brought in as a substitute for an injured skier. And then the, the conflict of the much of the movie is between uh, the Redford skier character and the coach played by Gene Hackman. And in the candidate Redford plays a community organizer who's not interested in running for elected office, but rather working with and on behalf of vulnerable communities to uh, increase their economic and political power. And eventually after he agrees to run as a protest candidate just to get some of these issues about the underclass and and uh, working people out there, Peter Boyle, who is his campaign advisor, brings in a media consultant named Howard Klein, played by Alan Garfield. And and much of the movie is is about the Redford character's growing disgust with this this slick, crafted presentation that he's being written into. And in Smile, we have the wonderful figure of of the choreographer, played by uh, Michael Kidd, who comes in and he's foul-mouthed and obnoxious and and late. And and we find out over the course of the film that that he actually has much more regard for these girls, for these contestants as human beings than most of the other adults around them. And by the time we get to Bad News Bears, the movie is crafted around that character, that Walter Matthau, the star of the film, is this alcoholic uh, ex-minor league baseball player who's brought in by a a local politician and paid under the table to coach this uh, little league team uh, uh, of of cast-offs and and rejected players. So so we, we have this comic structure on which he can put together these ensemble films, this this central idea of the competition, which creates a sort of unity of time, place, and action. It also prolifer- it also motivates this proliferation of minor characters. And then we have this central conflict in there between the contestants and this this expert consultant and then the powers that be that that are are pulling the strings behind the contest and all of these films really work very very well as social satire because of their anchoring in this particular constellation of of narrative events and this particular cast of characters that he and his screenwriters seem to be tweaking and refining and making more sophisticated and elaborate in film after film I find it very fascinating, the whole idea of us having the young American miss and having these contestants and then also being able to contrast them with some of the people that are in charge. You know, you talked about the Michael Kidd character, and then we can also talk about the Bruce Dern, the the, uh, Nicholas Pryor, the Barbara Feldon characters. And a lot of it seems like we have these people who are relatively satisfied with their lives. I mean, Big Bob is really full of himself when it comes to he is the head judge of this contest and he is the for lack of a better term the cock of the walk when it comes to this and i love that we have him very satisfied with things uh barbara feldon's character she is also very satisfied with things she is very into the beauty contest. This was her thing. She was a former winner and here she is now kind of the grand dam of this whole thing. 
then we have Andy who really contrasts both of them because he's not happy with anything that's going on with his life. He's about to turn 35 and he is about to go through this horrible ceremony. He's a member of the JCs and now it's time for him to move on to something else. And there's this whole exhausted rooster ceremony. And when you think about it and which is basically him uh, as he so poetically describes it, kissing the ass of a dead chicken. And actually, that's that's literally what it is. <laughs> like I thought for sure he was just you know kind of sugarcoating it a little bit, but no, no, he's he's kissing the ass of a dead chicken. I love that he is fighting against that so much, while Big Bob and uh, Brenda are just satisfied with everything, or at least seemingly so. And then we have that wonderful story that Big Bob tells about Liz Taylor. Jesus, doesn't anything ever get you down? Yeah, I get my apple cart upset sometimes. I just learned a long time ago to accept a little less from life, that's all. You want to know who taught me this great lesson in life? Elizabeth Taylor. What? I never bothered to tell you the story because I don't believe in a lot of negative stories, but uh, one time I actually had a date with old Liz herself. You're kidding. Mm-hmm. You remember when I went off to junior college in Los Angeles? Well, I had a class with a guy that was Liz Taylor's cousin. He fixed me up with her. What was she like? I never met her. You just said... No, I just said that I had a date with her. I never said that she kept it. <laughs> you should have seen all the preparations I made. I went out and got the best flowers that I could find and a great table at the world-famous Coconut Grove restaurant. And then she never showed up. That was the weekend that she ran off and married the hotel guy. Sorry. Oh, you don't have to be sorry. It's just that now I'm married to Roberta and I'm happy about it. Even though she is... A little less than Elizabeth Taylor. God, Elizabeth Taylor was beautiful. That is one of the saddest moments for me in this whole film. And it really kind of contrasts like where he's at with his life, where Big Bob is at versus where Andy is at. And also versus where these contestants are, these young American Miss contestants who are so full of exuberance and who want to take on the world. And by them, most of them losing this beauty contest, they're learning that same lesson. They're learning to accept a little bit less. And I love that this is like kind of their first foray into the world and experiencing just kind of that cold reality of the world. He tells that story and he says that you learn to accept a little bit less But the most important thing in his life is shaping these exuberant girls into the artifice of ideal ingenues. And he's unhappy with anything that sort of threatens the ideal world that he's created. He gives Andy crap because Andy wants to leave town. And he can't leave town because Big Bob's life is very structured and orderly. And everyone has to play their role in maintaining his illusion of how great his life is. Carol, you're talking about creating this illusion of the perfect world. How do you see that playing out in some of the candidate interviews? We talked about that uh, once when we first discussed the film. 
all the girls have interviews and they're all sort of coached through them. And I, I think it's the first one we see. They ask the one girl, um, what do you think of women's lib? And she's smart enough to know that what she's supposed to tell them is that she thinks it's very silly. And we, when we get to Robin, who is sort of the contestant that we follow through the whole process, who starts out being sort of a regular girl and then becomes more wise in the ways of the Young American Miss contest, they ask her what she thinks about abortion. And it's sort of fascinating to me because now I don't think they'd even use that as one of the questions and certainly not in this kind of film. But all the girls learn to say that they care about other people and that caring about other people is more important than themselves. And they all learn to say these sort of ideal feminized things. And by the end, Robin realizes that she had believed all the things that they were saying, that this isn't really a competition, that they're all supposed to be friends. And her friend Doria tells her, no, this is a competition and here's how you win. Yeah, that coaching scene that she gives is terrific, talking about putting the Vaseline on your teeth and the way that she should approach all this stuff. It is terrific. Uh, this corruption of the innocent theme is something that really pervades a lot of these early Michael Ritchie films. We see it in The Candidate, certainly, in, in the Robert Redford character's uh, uh, political campaign. We see it in Smile and the Beauty Contest, and it and it sort of reaches its full expression in The Bad News Bears, where no one really escapes the demeaning and hurtful elements of this competition that they're forced to go into. No one, one remains thing, naive for long. One thing I think it's interesting about this compared to The Candidate and The Bad News Bears, and probably more so with The Candidate than The Bad News Bears, is the kind of femininity that these girls are, I don't want to say having foisted on them because they're participating in this contest and many of them want to win, but the, the kind of women that they're supposed to embody, the kind of women they're being shaped into, don't compete. And it's interesting to me that part of the corruption process ends up being a little more complicated where they can admit that they want to win by the end. They can admit that maybe they do want to compete. And of course, a young American miss would never want to do that. I love that story that Doria, uh, the Annette O'Toole character tells uh, when she's talking to, I think she's talking to Robin, uh, talking about a uh, beauty contest that happened in Orlando. I won Miss Teenage Complexion. I, I don't think I've heard of that one. It was sponsored by this horny old dermatologist in Orange County. He rented a room at the Disneyland Hotel. He got 16 girls in bathing suits, and he had his own beauty contest. You're kidding no. me. Well, didn't you get mad? Oh, no. I won $200 and had a wart removed. That, with us already knowing about the judges in that contest where we saw Colleen Camp talking about her tits, you know, it's just, it really shows just how shallow these contests are and just how corrupt that those are throughout this and and Ed O'Toole the Doria character just seems to be okay with it uh whereas I think that Robin kind of is not but yeah as she goes throughout through this film I'm thinking that maybe she would become okay with it as we go on because it just seems to be the rule of the land or she may take this lesson that it's okay to to fight for something that you want elsewhere as opposed to like it turns out she's okay with not winning and it turns out doria did kind of win and it's okay with her that she got to to be fourth runner up you you mentioned the incredible shallow sexism of the impulse that undergirds this entire institution we see that 
most spectacularly in the subplot of Little Bob and his friends that, <laughs> that, that he's literally Little Bob. He is running his own Sub Rosa Santa Rosa beauty contest photography sales scam where he's trying to take these pictures of uh, the undressed contestants and and sell them at school and he's the he's the same glad-handing manipulative guy that his dad is we see him go into the camera shop and turn on the the innocent face asking about do you sell polaroid film sir and all of this other stuff and so we see this next generation coming up with these boys who are going to grow into the same unreconstructed sexists that their parents are, that their fathers are. And that one friend that you mentioned before Freddy. just has no idea how to <laughs> how to be dirty, but he sure is trying. <laughs> yes. And yeah, I love this whole idea of Big Bob and Little Bob, especially after, well, when Little Bob finally gets caught and we have that beautiful scene that's all just done to music of him getting caught and trying to escape and all this. And Neil Sedaka music. Yes, so good. And he eventually gets sent to a psychiatrist. And then when the psychiatrist is asking Big Bob, you know, how long has he been Little Bob? And he's like, well, since he was little. And then when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, you know what? His wife's name is Roberta. So if you were to go to their household, all three of them would be named Bob. It would be really strange. <laughs> And we were talking a little bit as far as Big Bob wanting to control things, wanting his world to not be rocked. And yeah, Andy, there's a, a great line at the beginning where Big Bob says to Brenda, you know, don't forget, he was my friend first before you married him. And it's just like, you know, he's kind of expected. He's got to have the best friend. You know, every uh, Fred has a Barney, you know, and it's like he's his Barney and he knows that he's going to be there. So when Andy ends up, rebelling against that and saying just how shallow everything is and just that he wants to leave this little town and go to the big city that's when bob just cannot handle it and he's just immediately tries to rope andy back in and just try to put him back on the straight and narrow path the first time i saw it i thought big bob was a hilarious character a sort of classic glad-handing small town inveterate optimist and and of course as we go through the film and we see what happens and we he tells the Liz, Liz Taylor story and that extraordinary ending with the with the marines where he tells them it, that he was in the same regiment as they were in in Korea and they just ignore him and keep talking about uh, the tits on one of the contestants the first time we see the film it's easy to laugh at his at his optimist club optimism but there's a real element of desperation behind his perpetual optimism it's it's manic and it's too much and it's nervous uh, as a friend of mine said you can see the flop sweat you know under his under his business suit and, and it's a, a remarkably finely textured performance and of course uh, Barbara Feldon in the character of Brenda we see how tenuous her hold on a sense of having a fulfilling life is by the end of the film that becomes actually explicitly acknowledged in the dialogue and the action of the film. So the Nicholas Pryor character, Andy is such a threat to them because he blows the whistle on what they already know to be true. Even the head of the, uh, the lions club, uh, Oren Brooks, the uh, undertaker played by Paul Benedict uh, gets really defensive and dismissive when 
Andy talks about leaving town and he said, well, I moved to a big town and almost died of a heart attack because of the stress. So on some level, I think uh, Andy is the sort of canary in the coal mine, which is why he's so threatening to some of these other characters around him who aren't optimistic or happy or fulfilled at all. I love that scene that you're talking about where they're at the drive-thru having a private conversation, Andy and Big Bob, but yet it's being heard on the loudspeaker and it's, uh, in, um, I almost called him Mr. Bentley. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Benedict comes out and brings out the food to these guys. And then, yeah, starts giving them that whole speech. Like imagine yourself in, in traffic and you've got the hearse and da, 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 da. And, and just, yeah, Andy is just like, this is what I'm talking about. You know, you can't have a private conversation. Everybody's got to stick your nose, their nose in your business. And they're so innovative. They'll come running out of the, the fast food restaurant to tell you no, no you can't move and even after andy gets uh, thrown in jail later on in the film when he comes out it's like what are you going to do now i'm going to move to a big city no no you can't do that i would imagine his social capital after shooting his wife in the shoulder would probably be pretty low at that point in santa rosa unless they all pretend nothing happened because it doesn't fit with santa rosa I love that it's it, this movie takes place in Santa Rosa, you know, because I'm a huge fan of uh, Shadow of a Doubt by Hitchcock, which Santa Rosa is a, a major character inside of that film. So that this is also taking place in Santa Rosa and scratching that surface, you know, pulling away the the fronts of the houses to show all the piggish people inside. You know, it's just terrific that that they set this in the same place. One of the things that I can really see some people objecting to in the film are those verite crowd reaction shots that really emphasize the bovine uncomprehending just lining up at the trough to slurp up whatever ideological slurry is being fed to them that some of those Shots of the extras really do seem to have a, a misanthropic edge to them. Well, it kind of reminds me of the George Weiner character who doesn't even have a, a name in the film as far as I know. But he's the uh, – I think he's the second guy who does the exhausted rooster ceremony. <laughs> and just his reaction to how much he loves you know, loves doing that. And he just gets in there and just really gives that uh, chicken's ass a real good kit pucker up, you know. And it's just like – he he's all for it and he's yet another one of these people in this town who just wants the status quo more than anything well there there are three of them and the first guy has his eyes closed like he's a kid getting his first communion and yes and then the second guy is the one you mentioned who just uh like you said just really goes to town and of course andy is looking at both of these things and he's you know drunk and dizzy and stuff and it's all just too much for him and he flees the ceremony i love that andy's profession is making trophies, making these chintzy ass fucking trophies for all of these winners in town. And I would bet dollars to donuts that he was probably also the guy that came up with those great badges for the judges to wear as well. Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure he is. Yes. Yes. Because he's married to. Yeah. Married to Brenda. And you know, he's the guy who probably put Bob's big Bob's name on that gold, uh, gold badge that he's so proud of. Are those the name tags? Uh-huh. Wally. Wally. Do you like it? Uh, do I like it? Boy, gold this year, huh? 
No, just yours is. The rest are only silver. Oh, Brenda, thank you. That's really nice. And that's one of those moments when that happens. That is one of those Bruce Dern moments where you're just like, holy shit, this guy is good. The smile that just sort of, yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. I'm just, just shut up, Kevin. I'm bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the film is called Smile and the smiling is a motif throughout the film and they'll often cut on a character smiling and cut to another character smiling you know, in another scene and they juxtapose all of these uh, subplots and the, the smile becomes this mask that people hide behind, you know, with their own private agony. And as you said, it's, it's fascinating that the most pessimistic and defeated character uh, in the movie is the guy whose job it is to make trophies telling everybody else what a great job they did, you know, Little League or uh, the Rotary Club or the baking contest or whatever. And Brenda, who is always saying just keep smiling just keep smiling and it's like yep that's her whole thing and just her perfect world and just as you were saying it's so tenuous as far as what can destroy her and you know eventually andy shoots her but thank god that uh you know the the towels were down on the floor (laughs) andy has come home after fleeing the exhausted rooster ceremony despite being assured by Big Bob that this would fix everything in his life, apparently being presented with like a dead rooster (laughs) with its ass filled with, I don't know what, it was cream filled. I think in Boston cream, maybe. He flees the ceremony, returns home. His wife wants to talk to him about uh, the goings on at the competition, and he's had it. He is in the process of turning his anger towards others, but he's still turning it towards himself. And she tells him that he's crazy after he smashes her large porcelain husky, I guess. Isn't it a lion? What is it, Mike? It looks like one of those Chinese dogs to me, almost. And she has it very proudly displayed in her perfect living room. And she has a large portrait of herself, presumably from when she was a young American miss, displayed in her living room. And she's unhappy with him. The first thing she says when he comes in, after he's apparently run through a park or wherever they're holding their secret ceremony, tracking dirt all over it, she's mad at him for tracking dirt all over it. There's paper down on the on the carpet, and you're only allowed to walk on the paper because she just had it. Ah, I hadn't noticed that. Two rolls that kind of form a V that go right towards that uh, that painting. Well, he goes right towards that painting, smashes her dog. She tells him that he's crazy. He says, they've already told me that. And then he goes into their bedroom. She finds him in the bedroom with a gun in his mouth. And he tells her, it's okay, I've put a towel down. And then she gives him some guff about, like, that's the coward's way out and you can't fix your problems that way. And unfortunately, that's when he has his little moment of enlightenment and realizes he is not angry at himself. He is angry at everyone else in his damn town. And he shoots her. And she shows up to the ceremony presumably the next day wearing one of the most beautiful slings i have ever seen <laughs> in my life it matches her powder blue crown <laughs> it's a, a gucci sling she must have had a friend go get it for her so that no one would see her arm before what do you think of the character of brenda this is a this character really changed as i viewed the film over the years, in my own mind, I'd like to hear your thoughts on on the, the character of Brenda and the performance of Barbara Feldon there. 
I think it would be different if I had actually seen it uh, earlier on, if I had seen it before I saw other pageant movies, if I had seen it before there were reality television things about different kinds of talented people moms. And so it actually seemed very comparatively sensitive. Like I would still find her very difficult in real life, but she's not a monster. She's just a difficult, normal person. And I think if this movie had been made now, it would be more like something like, I don't know, Drop Dead Gorgeous. Like they would make her into something monstrous, something like just a a terrible, unspeakable bitch. And I like that she's a complicated person. She's difficult, but she knows what she wants and she's working hard to get it. I got to say, whenever I saw this in the theater, (laughs) when he turns the gun on her, the audience goes nuts, laughing, screaming, clapping, and then he pulls the trigger. We fade to black, and it's like someone has scored a touchdown. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Just not surprised. I will say the first time that I saw this that I did think she was kind of a bitch, and I hesitate to use the B word, but then subsequent viewings, I really do empathize with her. I don't know if it's just the wisdom of the ages or what it is, but I can really see where she's coming from, and I can see where she is trying to keep all these plates spinning and where she is trying to just keep smiling and why that is so important for her. And so now when I see him turn the gun on her, now it's a moment of, oh, no, Uh, instead of like that cheering kind of moment the first time i saw it i imagined that i was very like yeah you know you're you're doing something for yourself finally andy and then when it turns out that she's not dead it's like yet another incompetent move andy you can't get anything right but now i'm 180 degrees away from that i definitely can find a lot of empathy with her character which i find to be a real testament to how Barbara Feldon is playing that character, that she isn't playing it as this, you know, mustache twirling type of villain or anything. She's not that pageant mom. I, I don't know if she had a daughter in the pageant, it would probably be a different story, but she's not that pageant mom who is, you know, scraping and cheating and doing anything and everything in her power. She really is just trying to keep with the what she sees as the dignity of this contest and keep her head above all of it. That while everything around her is, is crazy, she wants to be that calm center of the universe. What does she tell Andy the first time we, we see that they're together at home? Is it, is it like great? Another evening of drunkenness is uh, sarcasm. Yeah. Very much like that. Yeah. Cause the first time we see him, he's just there in the dumps drinking which is really what we see Nicholas Pryor doing a lot throughout this film. Well, and we see that he's eating a TV dinner, which is the sort of nay plus ultra of, you know, white heterosexual male suburban abjection. And at one point, the camera tracks past him and we see that the freezer is full of TV dinners. And as a guy who cooks for his family, because, you know, I'm take my family seriously i gotta say when i see that i think what a loser you know and and it you know once again 1975 the different social context and stuff maybe that was intended to elicit sympathy for him uh but it, it does anything but that now and of course later he's having the donut with big bob he says well look i i can you know bob i can tell you the problem uh brenda's frigid 
And, you know, Bob is like, I think the waitress heard you. Okay. And, you know, and of course, you know, once again, with the, you know, uh, passing of time, you know, a woman is quote unquote frigid because her husband is inept. And of course, once again, you can't really imagine Andy being any kind of uh, a sexual powder keg, even before he wasn't an exhausted rooster. You know, and so, you know, once again, that it seems to me that, that Brenda is, is quite a sympathetic character. Certainly 180 degrees removed from what we would expect that character to be in 90% of the movies that had that character in it as a sort of premise or a plot device. Well, he even presents Big Bob with her argument of why she's not sleeping with him, and it's because he's drunk all the time. And he wants Big Bob's sympathy about it's unfair of her not to sleep with me because I'm drunk all the time. Which And that's, of course, very appealing to anyone. It turns me on just thinking about it. Gotta love the whiskey dick. Yep. <laughs> God, that scene is yet another moment of Bruce Stern just giving another great line. You know, he's got, throughout the film, just as Brenda keeps saying, just keep smiling, his whole thing is no rest for the weary. And he keeps saying that throughout. But he has these other kind of like little throwaway quips kind of thing that just make him the character that he is. Like when he goes in and orders that donut, he's just like, don't charge me for the hole. And it's just like that glad handling crazy sports jacket wearing Herb Tarlick type of guy. It's just like, Oh my God. You know, and he is such a salesman. I mean, God, even in that first thing where he's talking to the couple and, you know, now you're making decisions for three you know, and patting her belly and trying to figure out how, when she's doing everything. And then when he blows up that balloon and hands it to him, it's just like, what the hell is going on here? He doesn't even tie it off. He just no. blows it up and pinches it and gives it to her. Yeah. <laughs> the forms are enough. I would love to see his local TV ads for his dealership. Oh, God. Oh, that would be a great DVD extra. They'd shoot those now, right? They'd be playing on a television set somewhere in the background, you know. <laughs> oh, that would have been so good. It's funny that the movie starts with Colleen Camp, and really this episode started with Colleen Camp, because I had approached her for an interview maybe two years ago. I'll have to go back and see when the first time I ever approached her for stuff. And then as I talked with her more via email i kept thinking of other things that i'd like to ask her about you know first one was smile second one was death game and the third one was apocalypse now and it's just very ironic that uh, she was the impetus for a lot of this episode and she's the one who i'm still not able to get i tried so hard even after the death game episode came out and i sent her an email and i'm just like sorry you couldn't wait any longer here's death game oh i really wanted to be part of that and i'm like well you, you still can we're gonna do a follow-up episode so just let me know when you want to. nothing crickets i'm like but instead i did manage to talk to a couple other people for this episode uh, we talked about Bruce Dern, Barbara Felden, also talked to Annette O'Toole, Denise Nickerson, and Nicholas Pryor. So I'd say let's go ahead and we're going to play all of these interviews. So it's going to be a long damn break. And we're going to start off the break with a couple of promos, some uh, words from our sponsors, as it were. And then we'll be back with the interviews and then we'll conclude this long conversation about Smile. So just remember to keep smiling while you uh, listen to these interviews. A 
Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Then you come to the right place. My name is Gary and I'm your guide to the Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet. Alright, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, and listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sun Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Bruce Dern. Michael Ritchie was brought to Hollywood in 1964 by the Kennedy family. He had a scholarship at Harvard, which he won. And he came out here because the Kennedy family was having a television series called Profiles in Courage. And they were all things out of John Kennedy's book, you know, heroes that had done unusual things. And Michael Ritchie was brought out to direct them at 24 years old. And Michael Ritchie was six foot nine. And uh, 
The only guy I ever seen as tall as Michael Ritchie side by side is the big kid that wrote Jurassic Park, the red-haired kid. Yeah, Michael Crichton. And uh, together they looked, uh, you know, as big. Both had kind of red hair. Richie had red hair. Michael's was blondish red. So I'd, I'd worked with him in television. I didn't do a Profiles in Courage, but then a year after that, when that closed, he started doing episodic television. And he directed me in a big valley. And that was a show Barbara Stanwyck was a star of. So we went on and uh, got along very well there. And then uh, when he started making movies, his first movie was Downhill Racer. Then, let's see, he did Downhill Racer. Then he did The Candidate. And then I think his, his next film was Smile, I think, Michael. Because he did smile before Bad News Bears. Nicholas Pryor. Michael was living in Mill Valley, California, which is a suburb just north of San Francisco. And he had already made Downhill Racer and The Candidate. And he had had a big television show in California called Big Valley. He essentially was a man who created entire worlds in his movies. And Downhill Racer... He created an entire Alpine uh, race series. I mean, it, it wasn't featured in the movie, but if you were paying attention to the standings and the schedules and this and that, made perfect sense. The same thing with um, the good news, uh, the bad news bears. He created an entire little league um, with teams and standings and um, races. And he did the same thing with Smile. I mean, it's an entire beauty pageant. And um, he was kind of a celebrity in the area. So one summer, they asked him to go up to Santa Barbara and be a judge at the Junior Miss pageant, which was this teenage beauty pageant uh, sponsored by the Junior Chamber of Commerce. And he did. He didn't know anything about it. Well, my God. It... (laughs) The people at Sutter's Mill could not have been more excited when they over when they, when they turned up the first nuggets of gold, because this incredible opportunity there it was. He stayed there the whole week. He couldn't wait to get back to California, and he immediately got hold of Jerry Belson, the comedy writer, who was uh, working at that time on uh, The Odd Couple, and he said, you, you, "You're not going to believe this." However, the pageant was over. So the next summer, he took Jerry up to Santa Barbara, and Jerry couldn't believe it. He said, you know, this is the most incredible place he'd ever been. He, he couldn't get over the fact that one night he, was, he felt sick, and he did some dry heaving in the bathroom, and the next morning, um, everybody he met at the coffee shop asked him if he felt better. <laughs> And it's just incredible things one right after another. So Jerry did the script, and then they had to wait because the pageant was over, and Michael decided that he was going to have to wait until the pageant came again. And in the meantime, I think he discovered that the junior Miss people would not let him make a movie involving them. So what he had to do was he had to 
stay, he had to literally stage his own pageant. Um, he had to get all the contestants and he had to, you know, make the whole thing look like the real pageant. Barbara Felton. It was a satire on a beauty pageant. He had actually uh, judged the year before a kind, I mean, he had not the same beauty pageant. And I thought it, it was maybe had a, an edge of unkindness to it. But when I saw the film, he had done it with such affection. And it was not the least bit insulting to the people or condescending or anything. The casting agent for uh, Smile contacted my agent and asked if I would go in for an interview with Michael Ritchie. And I, I talked to him and he gave me a script and, and I, to see if I was interested. And I loved the role. I knew exactly how to do her. She was so much a Pittsburgh woman, you know, who I grew up with. And, um, and then he said, but I, before I can cast you in this, you have to audition on camera. And in those days, I think it's changed today, but in those days, if you were on a certain level in the business, no one ever asked you to audition and it was considered, um, it, you know, it was considered scandalous if you would do it and it, it would just, you know, sort of soil your reputation. And my agent said, you can't do it. You cannot audition for this. Either they give it to you or pass. And I said, I'm going to do it. I said, I, I know how to do this role. And Michael had set up a video camera. I think it was video. Anyway, he, a friend who lived in Bel Air, uh, loaned him the house for the afternoon. And he sat behind the camera and he read the lines to me. And I performed the role. And, uh, and then he said, fine, that's it. And the thing that I loved about getting the role in that way, because I'd already worked on it, it was exactly the way I could naturally do it, was that when we actually shot the movie, I had no anxiety whatsoever about pleasing Michael. You know, I knew that he, he wanted what he saw then. And I knew I could do it, and so I was completely relaxed during that time. Annette O'Toole. Smile was my first movie. I had done TV a lot, uh, but, but Smile was my, my first film, and uh, Michael Ritchie was just an, an awesome way to, to, to break in. He was just a wonderful man as, as well as an incredible director, so it was a great start. Denise Nickerson. I really didn't want to do this movie. My agent, William Morris, said, well, there's nothing really else going on right now, please. Take it, do it, and make the best of it. Shut up. So, I did. When I first went in for the uh, for the audition for Smile, I'd never seen it. You know, I'd been on a lot of auditions by that time, and I hadn't seen anything like it. I mean, there were girls. I would normally see the same actresses at meetings, but... I was seeing girls I'd never seen before, really young girls. And I, I heard later that they were just calling high schools and like um, college acting classes and saying, just send all your young girls, you know. And you filled out a, a, an actual questionnaire for like if you were going into the junior miss pageant. It was, it was that kind of thing. I mean, you were being considered as a, a beauty contestant. 
So I, I filled it out and I looked all this stuff, like impressions and, and special talents and all these things that you can do. And I just saw girls, as I was you know, going in and out of the office, one after the other. I thought, well, I've got to do something to make myself stand out. So I wrote down, like the last minute, right before I was going to go in, I wrote down, well, I do impressions. I do Groucho Marx, Goldfish, and, and uh, a dead cockroach. So uh, I go in and they say, oh, you do impressions. I said, yes. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, it's stuff like you do fooling around at home. So they said, oh, do, do cockroach. So I fell down the couch and did this cockroach. And uh, it just involves kind of, you know, tensing up your hands and, and, and sticking your tongue out to the side and, you know, looking horrible. And um, <laughs> so she said, oh, my, this was a Pat, I'm Pat Monk. So she said, um, oh, Michael's going to love you. So I got a call back immediately. I was very excited. So I go back and, and uh, meet Michael, and he says, uh, oh, you're the girl with the dead cockroach. Before, I, before I, I even responded, I fell backwards on the couch and did this dead cockroach. He was tickled and then brought me back, gave me like four different parts to read. Nobody got a script. I didn't know anything. I just knew it was about a beauty contest. And I figured there were all these girls. I could play something in it. So I really concentrated on the part of uh, Judy, who in the in the movie does Ernestine, the operator, and does all the impressions. I don't even think I do want to do impressions. That's obviously the part to consider me for. So I worked on Ernestine, and I worked on Edith Bunker, and all this stuff that um, that Kate does in the in Kate Flechet does in the movie. I go back, and he says, um, "I'd really like you to read Doria." I said, Doria, that's the, oh no, that's the beauty queen. I'm not that. I, I really worked hard on all these impressions. So he let me do the impressions I'd worked so hard on because he was a very sweet man. But he said, no, I really want you to do Doria. So so I went out and, and you know, outside in the office and I worked on Doria some more and came back in and did my, did the whole, that whole speech about taking off your clothes, you know, that whole, the, the sincerity strip or whatever it's called. And then he called me back again. I must have gone in like four or five times before I got the part. And finally, I, I knew I was cast, and he's not, not cast the part of Robin. And so I read with about four actresses, I think. Uh, Joan was one of them. And uh, and uh, the Joan got the part, and, and I guess we were all... And there were only eight actresses. All the rest of the girls were from... Um, the Santa Rosa area or, you know, the San Francisco area, I guess. He really cast so carefully. I mean, that's why I went in four or five times because he wanted to make sure that everybody was exactly right. So once we were cast, he gave us great freedom to do what we want. I, I went to him and I, I mean, I got away with a couple little things that, you know, I said, I really, I, can I, you know, we had a wonderful costume designer, but I, I, I went to her and I said, can I wear, I want to be the only one to wear beige shoes. Everybody was like, like her, the uniform was supposed to be white shoes with whatever little dress she wore to the thing. And I said, uh, she, she's very conscious about how her legs look. She would never wear white shoes. You know, can she, can I wear my little beige sandals? So they let me do that. And if you look at a group shot, I'm the only one wearing beige shoes. And also she let me wear, and this was all, of course, came down from Michael. He let me have this freedom. I was the only one to, to kind of design my own rehearsal outfit. I wore my pink tights and my pink. And, you know, I just wanted to stand out all the time, it's, you know, because she was always, always working the room. You know, she's just everything she could do, you know, she was going to do. And she says at one point, you know, if they don't like my grades, they're not going to like my talent or something. And, you know, but it's, it was all, she was just trying to make points anyway. She put it into ingratiating herself. So I tried to do that as an actress as well.
David Picker was uh, the saint of the movie because he was the producer. And he'd just been running United Artists and several other studios he ran before and after that. But um, he was the independent producer on Smile. And uh, Michael Ritchie came to me and he says, you know, we only have a 30-day shooting schedule. And I said, really? And he said, so we'll work six-day weeks. Five, six-day weeks. We did it in our 30 days, and we shot in Santa Rosa, California, in July, August, and the beginning of September of, well, really just July and August, in Santa Rosa, which is about 60 miles northeast of San Francisco. It's in the wine country, and uh, that's where the big convention hall was and everything else. So I said, well... I can get you a cameraman who can shoot fast because I did a television series, Tony Burke, and he was a cameraman on it. So if you will come and uh, if you will let me go get him, I'll go get him. And so they said, well, how much will he charge us? I said, if you give him a hundred, this was on a $1 million movie. If you give him a hundred thousand dollars, he will pay for himself his entire department, and uh, his equipment. And they said, no one will do that. I'll say an Academy Award winner will do it. And they said, who is the guy? I said, Conrad Hall. And he had done the series I was in, Stony Burke, which was the first television series I was ever in. I was in it for 17 episodes. Jack Lord was the star, way before Hawaii Five-0. And Warren Oates and I were the two sidekicks that said, stay with him, Stoney. You know, we had a line a week. And Michael had directed one of those also. Conrad came and Conrad shot it. And uh, we did the most takes I've ever done in a day is 72 setups in a day. It was eight weeks we were up in Santa Rosa, California, above uh, Francisco. And in those days, 1970, what was that, 1974, there was nothing, I mean, for miles. I had never been to such a remote area in my life. And, of course, it's city, but I was used to New York City and Hollywood and L.A. So it was a city, but it was a very small city. There was, like, one hotel in town. That was it. We got to Santa Rosa, which is, I don't know, 35,000 people. And we were shooting in the big city auditorium. We shot the movie, and then it came time for the contest, you know, the actual contest itself. They didn't know how to get 2,500 people in there every day for three days. Would they come back? Would they be the same people? Would they sit the same place and everything? So what they did was they got all their extras, and they gave away, at the end of each day, from a car dealer there of the three days, they gave away five Cadillacs. And when you came in each day, you got a ticket. And at the end of each day, they'd give the five, and the next day, another five. Well, what happened was, they saw the people were like, they had 9,000 people asking to be there, the 2,500 people. <laughs> So they, as the extras, so they charged them $25 a piece to get in to be part of the movie. And they got vouchers, you know, that they were in the movie, uh, extras in the background, but that wasn't uh, 
that wasn't anything compared to the $25 that they were charged. So that's the only time I've been in a movie where the movie made money off the people that are in the movie. And that was, that was kind of neat. And another thing that was neat was the, uh, it was just a really good script. You know what I mean? And when I got the script, Michael Ritchie brought it by my house and left it for me. I was there. And he said, here, read this and then call me later tonight. Read it tonight. I'd stay here and watch you read it. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it tonight. And uh, I had just uh, been offered a family plot, which was Mr. Hitchcock's last movie. And uh, my career was going nowhere. Uh, basically, uh, Gatsby hadn't come out yet. Marvin Gardens had come out, but no one ever went and saw it, although that's another one of my three or four favorite films. I get a script, and I read the whole thing through to the end. And then it says, an America's young American miss for 1974 is going to be, and the page was blank. And underneath it, in italics, it said, remember, there were two Harlows, meaning they made two movies, two Harlow movies, one with uh, Joe Clayberg and uh, with the guy, Barbara Streisand. And another one was with, um, uh, I forget who the other one was with. But so it was, they, they didn't no one want to know. And we did the entire movie, and they never picked a winner until that night when they were setting up the shot, and they said, okay, we'll take a fifth place, a fourth place, a third place, a second place, and then no one is going to know who wins. And none of the five girls knew that they won anything. So each, each one was surprised. And the last one, Sean Christensen, who was Miss Fresno, she... She won it, and they said her name, and it's all on. They didn't do a second take. They had three or four cameras on her, and the reactions to everybody, because you can't, with those kind of girls, she never acted before. You just were never going to, you know, capture that with those girls, because they just try and act it to repeat it instead of just being shocked and surprised. And uh, it was really weird that we actually did a pageant. That was something I hadn't expected when I showed up. It was a, lots of hard work that I hadn't anticipated. Luckily, I, I had been into dancing and singing, so that was okay for me, but I had no idea we were really going to do a whole pageant when I showed up. And, of course, we had no idea who was going to win. I don't even remember who did win. I think it was a girl who was not a professional actress, one of the local girls. I can't remember yeah, so we had no idea who was going to win. I had a good feeling it wasn't going to be me. <laughs> you know, here they, they audition and they make me sing and all this stuff, and they figure, okay, they really want a good singer. And I get there into the recording studio, and they say, now do it, but not as good. Not as good. Not as good. And I'm like, what the hell did you have me audition by singing for again? You couldn't get it anybody to do it wrong. <laughs> so I don't know. I found I found the whole experience quite interesting. It was an interesting summer. It was all scripted except for the very, very end. We didn't know. It, the, script, the last, like, 15, 20 pages of the script were deleted. None of the girls knew who was going to win. They did an actual 
pageant. So when we were announced who, who was winning, we didn't know. We were they wanted us to have genuine responses to that. I really thought I was going to win. I really did. I'm still upset about it. <laughs> and I came in fourth runner up or third or whatever it was. That was the height of movie of the week production. And this was an absolutely golden script. And there would be no way he could stop it if anybody else came up with the same idea and just did a quick version. So he and Belson spent the entire year in abject terror that they would open one of the trades and find out that somebody was doing a teenage beauty budget. However, they didn't. But what they did do was they hedged their bets even more because the script went right up to the moment of choosing the young American miss. And then it was followed by four blank pages because it was always their intention to find uh, one of the locals to be the young American miss if they could. We had seven girls from uh, Los Angeles. They were known as the Los Angeles seven, Melanie Griffith and Maria O'Brien and, uh, but everybody else was a local. So they wanted to pick a local if they could, and uh, it was a closely held secret. In the script, there was a note that you may think this is overkill or over over security on our part, but they made two movies about Harlow. That was how the whole thing started. Michael, as as a director, it was a it was an extremely interesting man. Um, I've never met anybody like him. It was a remarkable experience. And I was very, very lucky to be part of it. Bruce was lovely. I, I, I had a something happen. It was so weird. I, you know, at that time I had cassette tapes, and I had a, a 10 CC with my favorite group at the time, and, and is one still one of my favorite groups. And I had a tape of theirs that I would listen to a lot, and so I had left it accidentally in the hallway of one of those big things, and I had asked, gone to the prop man, and asked him if I. If he if he found it, you know it was mine, and and to, to, to and he just like I don't know I think that it was the the first week of rehearsal. I think he thought I was just like one of the other girls, and there was no excuse for it either way. But he was he was very nasty to me, and he kind of really yelled at me in front of a lot of people. Like you know, I think he he thought I was asking him to look for it when I wasn't. I was just saying if you find it, it's mine. And Bruce found out about it that I had been kind of taken down in a not very nice way in front of all these people because I you know it was one of those dramatic things and it takes a lot for me to get really upset but I was upset because I was so excited about this whole experience and so I was crying in the bathroom and he sent somebody in to get me and he talked to me and he was so sweet he couldn't he just said you're wonderful don't listen to him he's an asshole <laughs> so I he, he just sort of became my hero even though he had been before just because I admired him so much you know, he was just lovely and we didn't have much interaction at all. But when we did, you know, he just kind of like, you know, give me the okay sign or something. You know, he was just such a, a sweet, supportive presence. And Barbara, you know, I really kind of made Barbara my, you know, I really wanted to impress her all the time because that's what my character was trying to do. So I didn't, I, she, you know, I kind of worshipped her from afar. I, I, I didn't have much interaction with her personally at all, just because I wanted to keep her like on a very special pedestal for for Gloria. And uh, and Jeffrey Lewis was probably the one we spent the most time with because um, 
he was at a hotel with us and he was just, you know, he just seemed like one, one of us, you know, he seemed like one of the kids. And we, we got out to dinner, all of us, and I think he liked being the only guy with all these young girls around us. So that was fun. It was a wonderful uh, uh, time to shoot. I mean, the sets, it was all on location. There weren't any, you know, uh, soundstage sets. Um, we went up to Santa Rosa, and which was so beautiful. I'd never seen that part of the country, wine country. And, uh, you know, when you're doing a movie, especially an ensemble movie like that, where, you, you know, you're not starring in it, and nobody really is. I mean, Bruce Dern I, it was the, you know, was the major role in it. Um, the rest of us were, you know, supporting players, uh, ensemble players, so that you're you're not working every day. You know, you have a lot of time on your hands. And I remember taking my bicycle with me when I drove up there, and the countryside was so, it was like, I'm, it was like the south of France, I think, in the Provence, where it's just Mother Nature at her most fragrant. And there was the Russian River there, too, and you could go and walk along the river. And I, I just remember it as being very, very beautiful place to be and the scenes themselves were just sheerly fun he worked very fast Connie Hall was the cinematographer and he was oh my god he was so revered in those years and he was like a star a cinematographer and uh, he he was doing everything handheld you know very very little was set up and the lighting was I think to a great extent I wasn't aware of laborious lighting or anything. And yet it had such a beautiful look in the movie. But doing the scenes themselves were just absolute fun. And, you know, the movie scenes are very short. So I don't, I don't remember so much the acting in it. I think the acting had already been done in the audition and I, I was just being Brenda and very comfortably at that time. The other actors were just, it was such a nice cast. So it was just very con congenial. Bruce Dern was heaven. He is the most articulate human being I ever met in my life. And uh, his use of language was so amazing. And at that time, he was running every day, you know, because he wanted to run in the, I think, Senior Olympics although he was like at that time really young it was carefree i don't i don't remember a bad thing about it i love the cast i mean I, I really liked barbara felton i didn't know her at all and she was a wonderful partner the girls were all fabulous and nicholas pryor who doesn't work enough i don't know if he's still acts or something but he was fabulous and it was and jerry belson the writer was in it also and uh, it was fun. What was your relationship like with Nicholas Pryor? Oh, he was lovely. He was just, a, you know, a good colleague. And he was wonderful to work with. And and we hung out together a lot. Uh, and I, I just remember him as being a really, really great guy. What was it like working with Barbara Felton? Without trying in any way that I could discern, she was wonderfully not quite there. Very hard thing to do on film because everybody's concentrating so much on what the scene is. 
And she was, but she was kind of a little, well, now we'd say a little spacey, but we didn't have, we never was spacey in the 70s. She was a little bit thinking about something else which served her so well in the park. She was very unhappy uh, because she thought that the part had been severely underwritten and she was supposed to be the villain and there was a memorable morning when we were at our house, which Mike was the cleanest place I have ever seen. Talk about eating off the floor, you could do experiments in the kitchen counters. It was so clean and uh, it was just all fresh and nice and sterile. <laughs> I, we were shooting the scene where I come in from the exhausted rooster ceremony and I kick the head off the cat and wind up attempting to commit suicide. And I, I, we got to the point of rehearsal and Michael looked at me and said, well, what's wrong? And I said, well, I got this terrible urge to kick the head off this cat. Well, the cat was about four feet tall and something you could find in front of a Chinese temple. But Michael thought it was a great idea. So we summoned the prop director, Alan, who <laughs> was not at all happy because the woman who owned the house said, yeah, we could kick the head off the cat if we got her another one. And that meant he had to go into Santa Rosa and race around the streets and try to find a cat. I was just in tears because it got broken. Did I break it or did he break it? I'm trying to remember. I think he broke it. I picked it up and cuddled it. <laughs> So we all had a chance to kind of sit there and not do much. And, you know, you never get a chance to do that on a movie, particularly a fairly low-budget movie. So people were talking back and forth, and one of the things that they were talking about was that the Barbara Feldon's character was supposed to be this terrible person. But the truth was nobody on the crew was persuaded of that. They thought, you know, what, what, what's, you know, what, what does she do that doesn't happen to me every time I go home? And um, I, Michael heard that conversation. I think he was a little distressed because that was toward the end of the shoot and uh, he, she was supposed to be this wicked witch. Uh, but she was great. She was the one who told me... Um, what life was like in California. Because I had never been there. I mean, I, except for going back and forth very quickly to do the Hitchcock, um, I had spent zero time there. I was clearly going to be going back there at some point in the near future. And she told me all about the differences in uh, energy between New York and California, which were quite terrifying. <laughs> but she was great. She was great. He he had the the fun part of shooting Brenda, but he was wonderful. He was really wonderful. Their married chemistry in the movie was kind of dysfunctional, but yeah, it was chemistry. One day, Michael said to me, Barbara, when when you get shot, 
I want every man in America to stand, or in, I want every man in the theater to stand up and cheer. And I started to cry because I felt, I felt such sympathy for Brenda. I know she was very cold and, and difficult, but it, 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 it was coming from, I felt, the the disappointments in her life and her marriage you know she was married to an alcoholic and and um and also the person i based it on was someone i loved and so i felt that intrinsically i understood her <laughs> but michael definitely saw her as the villain of the piece that's for sure also, she was getting older. I mean, she was then in her 40s, and I, or I think the script probably late 40s. I was in my early, I mean, late 30s. I was in my early 40s at the time, and I, she, she, you know, she was wearing her skirts a little too short for the time. She was just a just a little bit working a little too hard on looking spiffy and um she was she was working at charming people and and she had power and that was one thing she could control and she had the power over these girls and also she felt like you know like the den mother in a sorority or something or like the big sister in in a sorority where she knew all the ropes and she expected them to be just you know, she has that wonderful line in the beginning where she says, just be yourself, girls, and keep smiling, as though smiling was who they were, you know, as though that's not phony. What was it like working with so many professional and unprofessional, well, non-professional, I should say, not unprofessional, uh, young actresses and young women in the in the film? My scenes with them were all group scenes, so I didn't really have any one-on-one dialogue with any particular girl. But they were adorable, and the, of course, the girls from Hollywood who were playing the contestants, uh, playing you know the major contestants, um, were extraordinarily good performers. I, I just remember them as being delightful. I remember who was the girl who played. The the um, she played the contestant from I think Mexico. She did the baton twirling. That right. I think that was that Maria O'Brien. Yes, she told me Michael had selected from among the populace in, in Santa Rosa. He had selected parents for each one of these girls. You know, so that they would cut to the parent in the in the audience being proud of their girl. And he selected these two, this couple from Santa Rosa to be Maria's parents, uh, play act parents. And so they had a rehearsal and Maria did her act perfectly and in perfectly in the sense that everything went wrong and which is what it was supposed to be. Uh, uh, And, and after they did the rehearsal, this couple came up to Maria and said, listen, you have got to get that act together. This is, this is not good. And you've got to practice and you, and they really scolded her for performing 
in what they thought was performing badly. And she said she really felt almost like she was going to cry. She felt like a kid, you know, whose parents disapproved of her. It was probably a real uh, a real kick for the girl, the local girls who were there. Because I think there was only seven of us that were legitimate act- actresses. Um, and the rest were local girls. We all just melded together eventually as, you know, just uh, a group, so to speak. Um, I had known Melanie Griffiths a couple of years earlier when she was first with Dawn. And uh, so it was kind of neat seeing her again. Of course, Dawn would come up on the weekend and they would go out drinking. And it was just mayhem in the hallways with him kicking her from one wall to the other wall to their room. Some things never change, you know. We were all very, very serious about what we were doing. You know, we were all young actresses really wanting to do a good job. And, you know, Melanie was very, very young. And, um, you know, I I just remembered she was with Don at the time. And, and he would come for the weekend. And sometimes they would they would have some... <laughs> bats and she'd come in the next morning she'd been crying and you know things like that but that was no I mean did not affect her work I mean she was just right there doing you know and everybody was trying really hard I mean we were having to learn dance you know I had been a dancer oh Michael Kidd oh my god how can I have left out Michael Kidd Michael Kidd my geez my idol uh, he made me his dance captain because I had been a dancer before. So anytime I had to count out, you know, there, there are times when I'm counting out stuff, even in the movie, I'm, I'm counting it all out for the girls to do their kick line or whatever they're doing. And that was, you know, that was like a dream come true. He came over at one point, I'm standing there getting ready to do scene and he came up to talk about what was going on, you know, and he just kind of put his arm on my shoulder. I thought, oh my God, I can die now. You know, Michael Kidd has actually touched, touched me. And he was, couldn't have been, couldn't have been sweeter and more wonderful. Um, it's just, as you can tell, it was, it was a highlight of my life, not just professionally, but, but in, just in, in my, my life. It was just great. Michael Kidd. He had done, um, choreography in many things before. And I remember he um, made me dance captain. And I had to get all the girls from the back of the auditorium, way to the front, up the steps, and me end up way over on the left side of the stage. We had like, I can't remember, 32 seconds or something. Well, I get up there and nobody's behind me. They're all still coming <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the audience, to the audience. Sitting. He goes, neat. You have to bring the rest of them with you. You can't just leave them behind. It's good to just so fast, but slow it down a little. He was really nice. He was very nice. And Bruce Stern was really nice, too. There were 33 girls there, and only seven had ever acted. And that was the seven that played like the kind of main leads. When I got the script, anyway, uh, and I said, well, you know, who's going to pick up the pace if these girls fall behind? They said Michael Kidd, because that's who he is and that's what he does. And then here comes Michael Kidd playing the choreographer, the guy that, you know, trained him off of the show and, and did it. His gruff, he'd been on Broadway, and here he was doing some chicken shit festival in the boonies. And in real life, he won seven grand, seven Emmys. And uh, he and Fosse were the whole 50s and 60s of Broadway dancers. 
and uh, their shows. And so uh, he was on the girls every day. Michael didn't need to do anything it's, uh, because uh, Michael Kidd did it. And Michael Ritchie didn't need to do anything because they were uh, they were really doing, um, you know, they did remarkably well. When you think that those girls in seven days actually put on a pageant. You know, when they were shooting the rest of the film, we were practicing our routines to do the pageant. So it was always, something was always going on up there, not necessarily with us on camera all the time. We were really uh, encouraged to, you know, all be in this together, you know, to, to all be equal in the thing. But it wasn't equal, you know. We would eat lunch together, the girls, and we, we were in the hotel together. So, like, Colleen and I would have breakfast together, usually. And Maria, all of us became very close. Maria O'Brien and I became close for a while. And um, right before she was she was getting engaged to Michael Anderson Jr., and that was very exciting. And Caroline Williams, you know, all of them. Denise, everybody. Melanie, my God, Melanie turned 18 during that show. And I just remember it was so exciting for her because she didn't have to have the social worker teacher anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so she was very happy about that. And I just, we, I loved all the girls. They were, Joan, I mean, they were just wonderful. We had such a good time and we'd all go out to dinner together. So as much as we tried to be with, with the other girls, and we were during work hours, you know, we were there with them and we, we spent all our time at this, the big auditorium there. I mean, it was, it was kind of wonderful. It was this huge space and we would all go off in different parts of it and then they'd call us to do something. And, you know, sometimes we knew what we were doing. Sometimes we weren't quite sure and, you know, or where the cameras were, but it was kind of wonderful. I I really, it's, it it ranks way up there in in experiences I've had that that are very memorable and, and magical. Michael worked out a deal. Michael was a great deal maker. Michael Ritchie worked out a deal with Denny's Restaurant, who I think put some money into the movie for product placement, because Denny's keeps showing up all over the place. He worked out a deal that the the uh, the beauty contest contestants uh, would be paid in Denny's meal vouchers. And uh, it, it, he just couldn't help himself. He was a great deal maker. I remember he wanted. He called me up. When he made the bad news bears go to Japan, he he called me up because he had uh, he had a part in there and an ABC flack, uh, and I would just be wonderful. And would I would I like to come to Japan? <laughs> I mean, moving all this is a one of those transpolar telephone conversation. It's kind of like that, and he was going to pay me in. Uh, yen and I could change it in the black market and make a fortune. <laughs> and I said, Michael, how am I gonna go to the Japanese black market? I mean you are six feet six. Have you noticed that the rest of them are a little bit shorter? And he that you know, he said, Yeah, that'll be all right. We'll work that out. Anyway, when the women when the mothers of the girls found out how hard they were going to have to be working and how long they were going to be working. There was a kind of a, um, a Cesar Chavez work stoppage. And I don't know what he wound up paying them, but probably not very much. What a time of it. It was just the most ex- wonderful experience. And I was, um, I was always there on the set. I was always watching him, uh, mostly because Bruce told me to. After we rehearsed, which we did for a week, 
they started shooting and uh, I wasn't called because I was actually my deal said that they'd give me a, an extra round trip to New York because I wasn't going to be needed for three weeks. The second day they were shooting, I was around the hotel and Dern came in and he said, where were you? Where were you? I miss you. He said, uh, I said, well, I'm not working. So he said, let me tell you something. <laughs> if you're not working one day, that's one thing. If you're not working two days, the, the second day, you go to the set. You, you see what's going on. You see what they're doing. Uh, the least that happens is you get a free lunch out of it. But he said the best that happens is you get to watch the director. And you get to watch the director when you're not on the other end of the pressure. And you get to watch and see whether he gets what he's going for. Will he keep shooting? Or does he look at the clock and say, well, we'll try to fix it in editing and move on. All that good stuff. And I said, ooh, how about that? So I was always at the set. And he said, and also, if you haven't been around for a while, and you get to the set and you get a kind of a funny feeling. You'll think it's you'll think it's because they're talking about you. <laughs> and he said, no, it'll be whatever happened the day before. But you don't know that because you weren't around the set. I also found out about protocol seating at lunch. The actors sit together. The camera crew sits together. The wardrobe, the makeup, the... Everybody is, uh, by common agreement, uh, sitting off by themselves. Uh, and I found this out because <laughs> I'm from New York. Uh, hi, guys. And I was sitting wherever I wanted to, and uh, that made for some suddenly, <laughs> suddenly constrained conversations. The scene at the end in the jail cell, it was very important to Michael that I laugh in Big Bob's face when I say, yeah, I know who you are, you're a goddamn young American miss. And I'm supposed to just dissolve in gales of helpless laughter. And I couldn't fucking do it. I just, I did, we'd done everything else, everything else had worked wonderfully, but I just couldn't laugh at Bruce, I just, I just, I, I didn't, we didn't have an argument or anything. Uh, but I just, you know, I, I summoned up these weak little giggles and whatnot. Finally, after 19 takes, 19 takes, I don't think Michael Ritchie had ever done a film with 19 takes. Uh, they finally asked Bruce to put a button on it. So Bruce did a little prissy look and a little take and they went out on that and for years thereafter it haunted me that I, I couldn't come up with the laughter and I was really weird because I'd be riding around Los Angeles and stoplights right beside you I would suddenly burst into maniacal laughter and think to myself there that's 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 what they wanted that's what they wanted and that is not a rare experience in movies. The biggest difference between movies and plays is if you get an idea doing a play and you're lucky enough to have it run, you can try it out tomorrow night. You get an idea about a scene in a film, there's a better way to do it. Sorry, <laughs> we have moved on. We're on a different set. 
I remember that. The wonderful way that, that they used things that actually happened to the movie. And there's a, a memorable moment early in the film when they're setting up and one of the stagehands carries in a big, tall flat. It's too tall for the for the proscenium arch. They can't get it into position. So somebody grabs a saw and they saw the top off, <laughs> which is what they did. I mean, that's the problem they had and that's how they solved it. And mostly Connie Hall dashing up and down the the aisles at the pageant at the pageant performances getting footage. I, I had no idea who Conrad Hall was uh, but man, did he ever do a good job on that one. I like it. There's little sequences in it that really touched me and I had a Dernsey in smile. And Michael Ritchie said, uh, I said at the end of the movie, when I turn off my light and walk past the Marines who were folding up the flag, you know, I just kind of look at them and I'd like to be able to say something to them. And so Michael said, well, just thank them. Just say thanks a lot, guys. And then just kind of start to walk out as Nat King Cole starts to sing the song for the first time all the way through. You know, so uh, I said, okay, but don't cut the camera on me. I'm not going to say anything more. I might say a sentence beforehand. And he said, well, it better be good because if it's not good the first time, you're not going to do it again. So I walk over to them, and I'm on the ground, and they're up on the stage, the three of them, rolling up the flag, you know. And the one guy says, uh, they're just rolling it up. And I look up at them, and I see on their Marine uniforms that they're um, in the second division. I said, second division, huh? And they said, yes, sir. I said, I was in, this, I was in the second division, huh? We held the Chosan Reservoir, and then I turn, and I don't ever say anything after that, and the song starts. And that was a Dernsey, because I had a, I got a lot of people in my family, got a lot of shit done. One of my uh, uncles married my father's sister. William F. Dean was the first officer and general of the 7th Division. He was captured the fourth day of the Korean War. And uh, held, and when they let him go, two years later, he weighed 92 pounds. He went in 205. Very celebrated guy, because he, he wouldn't give up his platoon. So they let the platoon go, but they wouldn't let him go. So uh, that's why I wanted to put that in there. And I, I, I picked things from time to time. I Quinn allowed me a couple. I had no idea what I was doing. And he is such a generous actor. And the, the other the other thing about him is he never does the same take twice. Since the big challenge in all of this work is listening and seeing what the other person is doing, it was endlessly uh, uh, entertaining and also uh, it was just so valuable. He was just, uh, I mean, it's whatever I was able to accomplish, it was all due to him. It got so beautifully reviewed in the New Yorker and the New York Times. But I think that the studio that was doing it didn't put any money behind publicity. And um, I think it just didn't, it, 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 it just didn't get, it, it, it wasn't given a very good start out into the world. 
and um, very good release. I, I think Michael's films were smaller films in smaller houses and smaller releases, and and he was just in my mind, Michael is an American was an American treasure. Uh, he did these little films that were just absolutely had the full flavor of America. And in, in terms of the silliness of America and the beauty of, uh, it, the beauty of it, the innocence and the heart. And I had heard that he really never made any money on any of those, those pictures that he did early on. I think, I'm sure then he had quite a, probably very, very, a financially successful career after that when he began doing big, big films. The United Artists had no idea what to do with it. They had no idea what to do with it. So they, they sat and they stared at it for several months. And then at that point, United Artists had four theaters uh, all across the country. I think there was one in Albany and one in, in Texas somewhere, I think Dallas and a couple somewhere else. And they had these four theaters hooked up to some kind of computer algorithm or program by which they could take the receipts for a trial run at those theaters and project what the movie would do. So finally, they couldn't figure out how to sell the thing, so they decided we will release it to the four theaters. Well, Michael, <laughs> God love him. Michael tried to game the system. He got together. He got together a traveling troupe of uh, people. I, I don't think any of the any of the lead actors were part of it. But he got one of the young American misses, the, the the dancing girl with the big costume, and he got some other people. And he went to each of the four cities the week of release and pulled all sorts of stunts and public relations things and this and that and the other, uh, but didn't much influence the results. So the results came in less than promising for United Artists, so they kind of walked away from it. Uh, they put very little into the marketing of it. And uh, as a consequence, uh, very few people saw it. But I must say the people who did see it, who have spoken to me, uh, liked it. It was very exciting, and it, it did lead to other things. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like this, suddenly I'm, you know, I'm the next big thing. It just led to more work, which is all I ever wanted anyway. I wanted to be in the movies, and I wanted to act and work, and, and still, that's what I what I want to do. It's, it's just nice to know that you do have a, a job coming up, and that it's not the exact same thing you did before. Um, I, I did, uh, there's a, a, a movie, a TV movie I did based on a play uh, called The Entertainer, based on the John Osborne play that, and, and subsequent movie that Lawrence Olivier did. And this was an Americanized version and, and a musicalized version of it uh, that was done in 1975, maybe, or four. Anyway, I almost didn't get that part because it was a part of a beauty contest winner or, or and uh, Donald Rye who was the director just passed away not long ago didn't want to see me at first because I'd done this this part in Smile and I guess he thought it had been a bigger deal than it was because the movie didn't do very well and, uh, 
And so he originally wouldn't wouldn't consider me for the part. And then they kept saying, we want an Annette O'Toole type. I said, oh, my God, it's only been like two years, and I'm, now I'm a type. So he finally saw me, and I got the role. And uh, so, but that's the only thing that I remember, you know, coming from a smile. I don't ever look back on my career. I, you know, people say, what's your, what's your best movie? What's your favorite movie? Charlton Aston once told me, you, an actor is only as good as his next film. And so I always look forward. But I have a fondness, uh, a super fondness for a few. And one of them is definitely Smile. Delta Dawn, what's that flower you have on? Could it be a faded rose from days gone by? And did I hear you say he was meeting you here today to take you to his mansion in the sky? All right, we're back and we're talking about Smile. Thanks to all the fine folks who participated in all those interviews. Just a reminder, the rest of the Bruce Stern interview came out in December right before Hateful Eight came out. So go on over to our website, projection-booth.com. We will have a link over to that, and we'll include it with this episode. I kind of brought this up at the beginning of the conversation, which was the whole idea of this film being kind of difficult to find for a lot of years. And I know right now it's out on like Amazon Prime. I want to say that there is a DVD release out there. For a long time, this one was kind of difficult. And I don't know if there's a Blu-ray yet of this, even though I think there should be. And I don't think anybody has ever actually done the due diligence to put together the extras of this, to put together a commentary, to do any sort of special treatment for this film. Because, well, frankly, it didn't do very well in the box office, which, you know, per the interviews, there was kind of a reason for that. And But then there were some other reasons as far as you know, other people have theorized as far as why this film didn't do better than it did. Uh, some people say that looking at ourselves through this kind of lens that Michael Ritchie has put us under, maybe it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. I don't necessarily agree with that, though. Well, no, Bad News Bears came out next year. I mean, that was a hit. That was a huge hit. They had, what, two or three uh, sequels to that? And I want to say there was a TV show as well? Possibly, possibly. Yeah, I know that one was a big, big movie, and that played on TV all the time. Whereas I don't really remember. You mentioned some showings on USA. There have been screenings on TCM, uh, but yeah, it's not one of these like, you know, flipping around the TV station and I'm gonna find it. It could be because there's some young nudity of Melanie Griffith. I'm not sure. I think some of the aesthetic of the movie is one that's just not so popular now having the complexity of multiple protagonists, for lack of a better word, the fact that the movie doesn't necessarily take a super strong point of view towards them, doesn't have the A-B plot, three-act structure that so many movies have now. I can see why people wouldn't necessarily have picked it up on TV in the same way that they would pick up Bad News Bears. And I suspect that there's a certain amount of um, people would just rather watch boys play baseball that than uh, something that's looking at beauty pageants, even though the beauty pageant itself is an allegory. This movie is released one month after Nashville. And I see a lot of similarities as far as 
this kind of like sprawling narrative and these characters that are interacting with one another where maybe they don't necessarily know one another or they don't interact all the time. And just this kind of, uh, you know, Carol, I think you called it more of a a Raymond Carver-esque type world. Yeah, it's like a a collection of short stories and it's both super Raymond Carver and super Altman. Nashville was a huge hit and Smile just wasn't there just didn't hit at all i don't know why it wasn't then i can just take guesses about why it wasn't on tv in the 80s and the 90s and the odds so much well nicholas Pryor talked about the the film being basically abandoned by uh uh by mgm uh or it was ua at the time i guess i have to say as somebody who teaches film to undergraduates uh it's hard for some of us to see altman from this side of movies like Jaws and Star Wars and Back to the Future, that the the revolution that Altman and others were fighting in the late 60s to the mid-70s was viciously put down by the Cossacks. Uh, uh, you know, they were slaughtered. And uh, the, the A-B plot that you were talking about, Carol, that can be timed with a stopwatch. If you know the final running time of the film and you have a stopwatch, you can say plot point in three, two, one, here, and then lightning strikes. This episodic, Altman-esque, meditative, metaphorical ensemble film uh, doesn't really play with contemporary audiences uh, in, in the way that it did with people who saw it as a welcome change from a dying Hollywood studio style of filmmaking in the late 60s to the early 70s. So I many of the elements in the film that film buffs and uh, the cognoscenti and, and cult film people really embrace, I think those are the very reasons that it doesn't resonate with a, with a wider audience. I can see it coming back now with the rise of indie films and mumblecore films and stuff like that. Oh, I think so. Clearly. That's, that's the next generation of this (laughs) constant struggle against that, the, the tyranny of virtuosity of the Hollywood screenplay. The Hollywood screenplay is one of the great art forms to ever emerge from the mind of humans, but it is so ingrained in the production process and budgeting and everything of feature film production. And it's so ingrained in the minds of viewers that it's really an uphill struggle to make a film that departs from that and then to find that film playing widely and crossing over to a large audience. Kevin, you mentioned Jaws and this was the summer of Jaws, which definitely cannot be underestimated. I mean, People look at Star Wars as being that low or high water mark, however you want to say it, as far as you know the blockbuster, the summer blockbuster, but really it does go back to Jaws, and that was the whole start of the lines around the corner kind of thing when it came to this show that just people could not get enough of. And it pretty much, and pardon the pun, but it kind of gobbled up the competition when it came to anything else that was out at the time. And I'm trying to remember if this was May or June of 75, but I want to say Jaws' release was right around here. So really didn't necessarily stand a chance. Jaws was June because it was right as they figured school was getting out and Smile was July. And the fascinating thing to me about Jaws, I'm not a fan of the film. It's very well made. Uh, But the thing that really changed film history about 
the thing that Jaws did to change film history was the way it was distributed. It basically took an A Hollywood picture and it used a distribution pattern characteristic of low-budget exploitation movies, which is starting in the 50s, uh, distributors would find a slow season in the calendar and they would open their film on the largest number of screens they could pop screens. They were all one screen houses back then in the largest number of theaters that they could possibly book and and support it with a massive saturation TV and radio campaign because they knew that it wouldn't play for a second week because people eventually talk about the film and folks would know that it's not very good. And and so Wasserman and, and Universal had this idea to take an A picture and distribute it in in that fashion with that sort of massive support and to create a sort of sensation and, and a film and Carol, you mentioned that, that films like smile come back in the indie film uh, that, that the distribution patterns are similar also Mm -hmm. that, that, that smile is the sort of film that would probably succeed through a carefully curated slow amp up from a ramp up from a small number of theaters designed to cultivate good reviews to a slow increase in the number of screens. And this movie appeared not only at the juncture in Hollywood history, but in the very summer in which it was going to be harder to find places to book it because every theater that they could possibly book had Jaws. The theater that I saw Jaws in, in Wilmington, Delaware, in 1975, was a place out by a steel mill called the Edgemore Theater that was on the verge of converting to porn. It was a it was a theater, it was a subsequent run theater, beautiful art deco house from the 30s that had fallen into disrepair as some of these manufacturing jobs had taken people away from that part of town. Uh, and and a year later, they were only screening adult films, and and it was a theater that that the uh, you know the regional office of of Universal obviously said, and we're going to show it there. That they they took every single theater they could find and put their movie into it, and and you know. I would imagine that for that entire summer, a whole number of of films, some of which were probably you know experimental and uh, uh, more uh, rarefied, such as Smile, and much more conventional films, they literally didn't have screens to to show them on. And I have to say that the poster art, or at least the DVD art, I mean, the poster art is okay. It's a little strange as far as the whole idea of this tube of toothpaste kind of sque- you know squeezing out this girl who's got these sparklers for hair kind of thing and it's not too bad but i have to say that the dvd and vhs releases where you have this just big mouth on this woman's body not necessarily something that is going to make me want to grab it off of the video shelf but once again we're looking at 1975 from the other side of the 80s we could look at a at a graphic design like that and we can see an appeal to a sort of countercultural underground comic satire of american social mores you know you could sort of see them trying to possibly pitch it in that fashion i think they would have done themselves a, a favor by sticking with the poster art when it came to the dvd and vhs release because i just the current cover that i've seen of the the big smile on the woman's body 
just is kind of terrible. And really, you kind of get the idea that she's a beauty contestant because she's got a sash and some flowers in her arms. But it's not really coming through on there. Yeah, I agree. The poster art is better. One thing that I was curious about as far as the lack of home video was just the if this was one of those movies that kind of fell victim to the music rights, just because there is such a amazing amount of music in here. And I think Kevin, you might've postulated that the uh, Delta Dawn song might've kept it out of the limelight for a little bit. Well, Delta Dawn was a hit just like almost that year, wasn't it? I don't have the, uh, Carol, you were nice enough to send me a a video from YouTube Mm -hmm. of uh, Helen Reddy singing Delta Dawn. But I remember when I worked in the video store, uh, in, uh, in one of my many psychiatric sabbaticals from grad school, that this film came out from MGMUA in a package of cult comedies that hadn't been on video. Basically, it was a, it was a package of MGMUA films that was pitched as something like, well, you've been wanting to know why the, these haven't been on video. Well, here they are all now. And I can't remember all of them, but I remember the two films in the package that I was the most excited about was Smile and the great Norman Lear comedy, Cold Turkey, from 1971. The uh, Dick Van Dyke is the uh, the pastor that tries to get the count, town to quit smoking, and Bob Newhart is this evil operative sent in by the tobacco companies to subvert his efforts and stuff. And that movie has a score by Randy Newman. It was an original score of all of his songs that he sings throughout the film. And, and sort of Taking those two things in together, I would imagine that that probably if we went through the list of those films, if we could somehow reconstruct them, we would probably find that MGMUA finally decided to pony up and spend some money and buy the music rights for these to all be released in a block. So that would be my guess. Once again, uh, uh, I don't know this for a fact. I haven't been through Variety and looked uh, looked there, but there were a whole lot of uh, movies that that had delayed uh, uh, VHS releases because of music rights. Uh, And when New Line wanted to bring out Pink Flamingos in their deluxe version uh, uh, around uh, 98 or so, uh, they had to go back and and pay through the nose for some of the music. And the earliest version of Pink Flamingos that had come out on an indie uh, video label, I can't remember uh, if it was Intercontinental Video or one of those, uh, uh, you know, they just put it out with no effort to to secure the rights at all. So so a lot of these films really struggled with each new platform. The, the music rights had to be re-secured. Now, if you uh, license a song for a movie, uh, the producer has a contract that says, we own the rights to this piece of music in perpetuity in every imaginable form it might conceivably take at any point throughout the universe until the end, end of days. I mean, it, there's, the, the contract literally says something like that. The phrase throughout the universe is actually in the contract now. And, and so uh, uh, each time there was this new ancillary market for a feature film, there was this backlog of features that the rights holders to the property of the feature film had to go in with the composers and the performers and the American Federation of Musicians, you know, the residual payments to you know everybody who was involved, and they had to pony up and pay again. The reason that uh, movies made after 1948 
were not screened on TV throughout the 50s. It's a, it's a myth that it was the Screen Actors Guild that held up the contract until 1961, but it was actually the American Federation of Musicians. Uh, so so any time feature films move into a new mode of distribution, uh, the music rights presented a, a, a really significant hurdle toward their being showcased in that. And I would imagine the smile with you know songs by Nat King Cole and 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 Neil Sedaka and and Rodgers and Hammerstein song is in there I think and then of course a, a hit from the previous year Delta Dawn uh, sung uh, uh, just just in in defining fashion by that uh, saxophone player with the braces that, that there must have been just a, a huge amount of paperwork and payments that must have had to go through before this could be released on on home video we talked uh, a few weeks ago about one of the other uh, marketing problems of the film and i had read it on one website where somebody had said oh it was marketed to uh as a teen sex comedy and we talked a little bit about that and kind of put that idea on the shelf just because it didn't seem like that was a, a real thing but in the intervening time i actually found a ad for smile which totally looks like it was uh, a teen sex comedy kind of thing. There's a uh, almost like a poster of a woman who's holding the flowers and she's got the sash. And then you have these three very comely lasses sitting on suitcases in front of that. And then on the right-hand side, the tagline for the movie has been changed to an American dream, peaches and cream, maybe she'll go all the way. Do you think grown Freddie wrote that? <laughs> right, right, exactly. After he learned to compose in rhyming couplets, it was it was it was a done deal for Freddie. And it's interesting too because this film had a whole other life, well, kind of a, a different life because 11 years after it came out to theaters, it ended up being a musical, which has had kind of a, a strange history as well. Uh, it was a, um, a Howard Ashman and Marvin Hamlish musical. And apparently when it came out, it flopped pretty hard. <laughs> so I don't know if it flopped harder than the movie did, but uh, yeah, apparently it didn't go over that well. Um, Carol, you had a chance to listen to the soundtrack. What did you think? I only made it maybe a third of the way. Um, I I saw that they redid it in uh, 2014 and they were saying that they had added teeth to it, which, you know, pun... But I can see why they needed to, because they had sort of removed all the teeth from the musical. And, you know, in the opening of the film, Mr. Wilson explains to all the assembled girls the rules that they have to follow while living in Santa Rosa. It is requested that the girls do not dispose of their sanitary napkins in the commodes. Since there are so many girls in the hall, and since a sanitary napkin is thick and difficult... Well, just don't do it. He has great difficulty saying the phrase sanitary napkins, but they have more difficulty with that phrase in the 1986 musical because they basically replace the speech with much more palatable you, things about yeah. uh, bad girls who smoke and see boys. Oh, gosh. And possibly wear slacks. I don't know, but I could see it being like a 1963 kind of thing with bad girls wearing slacks and smoking. And it really felt like the musical that Big Bob Freelander would want written about his experience rather than the actual movie. There must be people who really enjoyed it, and I don't know anything about the 2014 one, so perhaps 
people enjoyed that, and it has both sanitary napkins and Delta Dawn in it. I'm curious if that whole discussion about abortion and feminism being silly, if that would have been in the musical as well, or if that would have been, you know, I wonder if they were kind of taming it and kind of moving it from 1975 into 1955, you know, it's just that kind of, it's easier to think of the world as being more idyllic in the fifties, as we learned through a lot of movies from the seventies. It would be great if it had kept that, those questions in the interviews, in a musical form, yeah. Singing a little ditty about abortion. Yeah, discussing it with your mother. (laughs) That was the thing that I was really amazed by, was reading the script and watching the movie. And I was kind of doing a side-by-side comparison. And seeing that all of those kind of awkward cuts and some of those uh, just like little like one-off kind of... uh, things that they would kind of throw into the film and and especially those um, interviews which felt like if there was any part of the film that could have been ad-libbed it could have been that but it was all written down it was all part of the screenplay i managed to get my hands on a screenplay that said it was a first draft of course there were a lot of differences between what ended up on screen and and what was on the page but there was a lot of stuff that was note per note for me i mean even when it came to some of those little witticisms of big bob they were all right there for him one of the fascinating things to me about the uh, looking at the script was that the as you point out during the interview scenes and with the judges and stuff the stuff that seems like it might be improvised is actually written down in the script and when we look at the changes that are that were made between the script and the final film it's often uh, the excision of scenes that kind of telegraph characters motivations or telegraph the social satire that the film is aiming for so many of the pieces were there that the editing really fine-tuned a lot of it would move stuff around a little bit like the introduction of the little bob character was slightly different and just some of those moments were out of order but so many of them were still there and then to your point there were a lot of things that were just kind of you know trimmed off here and there or, or little bits that weren't there i'm glad that they eliminated those host parents because they really were kind of superfluous to the film and we really kept with the contestants more than with them it almost would have been too many characters had we thrown in the host parents as well and also just as a as a note i mean swingers don't dog on teenage girls swingers are people who meet other people interested in sex for sex uh but they use the word swingers in the dialogue of the film and and, and i think the idea that these contestants would be preyed upon by the by the host parents that that takes the 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 elusiveness and the indirection of the satire and really brings it out to the forefront in a way that much of the best of the rest of the film treats in a much more indirect fashion, I think. I think it's good that they took that out because it would overwhelm everything else. And the satire wouldn't become a social satire anymore. It would become, I don't know, it would become focused on the predatory nature of those of those particular host families, not on this whole system set up by very well-meaning people that has some positive aspects, but also is, as uh, Wilson calls it, a meat show. And it would just go all meat show. It would not be, no one else would be um, 
implicated at any point anymore. It would just be those people. One of the most important lines of dialogue that gets cut out is is when uh, Robin and Doria are sitting outside waiting for the judges meeting. Uh, Robin says, you know, I sort of feel used. That's something that we see her slow realization of that over the course of the film. That gives it quite a bit more impact than to sort of telegraph her motivation at that moment with that explicit line of dialogue. Yeah, it's that whole show, don't tell. I mean, we already have, going back to the swingers, we already have... They're, they're, not, they're not swingers, Mike. No, they're sexual predators. Going back to the polyamorous. No, no <laughs> Okay. The kinksters. <laughs> going back to the sexual predators. The, pra- I mean, the practitioners of non-normative uh, sexual behavior, which are synonymous with predators and psychopaths. Yes, go ahead. Do you think they're Gorians? Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Can, can we cut all this stuff out, please? I want to talk about John Norman right now. The contestants already have so many things kind of pitted against them that I think having these sexual predators would have just been one too much. You know, we get the backstory of, of Doria talking about the beauty contest, quote unquote, in Orlando. We've got people who are just ogling them. We've got the band leader who is kind of a dick. Uh, you know, we've got that that great scene of Denise Nickerson when she is uh, doing her medley and almost, well, she literally gets blown off the stage by, by, <laughs> by the, the brass. Horn. Yeah. I love that. So we have all of these people. We have, you know, the, the demanding um, stage manager. We've got Jeffrey Lewis, who's trying to get the most bucks out of all this kind of stuff. So I think it would have just been a bridge too far. Had we had even more of that. And I think that, the scenes at the host family's houses or house that we get, it seems to be a zone of safety. So I'm glad that there isn't that predatory nature to that because they do need a time. We do need that moment of Robin and Doria being able to speak rather freely. And and it is interesting that this whole idea of like uh, being in a, a bathroom where a man has been, I think that's enough. That I think that's uh, all that we need when it comes to that. So I'm glad that they cut that. And I think all of the edits that they did between the page and the stage, I thought that those were all very smart. There's nothing where I'm just like missing it when I read the screenplay. Thank God they changed the Jack in the Box in the script to Major Weenie, though. That was one of the major <laughs> improvements. I know for sure Bruce Dern brought this up, and I want to say somebody else brought it up in the interviews as well. This whole idea of the script ending with no revelation of who the winner was. And I'm imagining that maybe there was a shooting script that was like that, and or maybe the pages that the contestants got had that had it didn't have who the winner was just so that it was kept in the dark so we get some of those real reactions to the announcement of who was going to win but obviously that stuff was scripted out i mean and the the script that we found goes all the way to the end all right we're going to take another break and play preview for next week's film это не земля это другая планета такая же как земля но не догнавшая лет на 800 
For those of you who don't speak Russian, that was a trailer for Hard to Be a God. We'll be talking about the 2013 and 1989 versions of the film, and I'm happy to say that Carol will be back for that episode. But Carol, before we talk next week, what has been going on with you and the cultural gutter lately? Our horror editor, Angela, has just had a baby, so she's on maternity leave. And we have a guest star providing two articles for us. Jessica Ritchie will be writing about Canon's artsier, fartsier fair for us. And this month, she's writing about Nicholas Rogue's Castaway. Beth Watkins is working on a piece about a Bollywood adaptation of American Werewolf in London. I'm working on some stuff about Shonda Rhimes' TV shows. And Keith Allison is possibly reportedly working on a piece about Elvis. People can find us at www.theculturalgutter.com, and they can also find us on Facebook as Cultural Gutter and on Twitter at Cultural Gutter. I also want to thank this week's other guest co-host, Kevin Heffernan. Kevin, since the last time you were on here with our Brain That Wouldn't Die episode, I hear you're now putting together your own podcast. Can you uh, shed some light on that for me? I started a blog on international genre film, television, and cult media called The Crawling Eye, and it's available at crawlingeyecultmediablog.blogspot.com. And I'm going to be launching a podcast version of that blog in uh, the summer sometime. Uh, a lot of great stuff coming up. I've been doing uh, interviews with some sexploitation filmmakers and performers of the 1960s and 70s. I've been doing some uh, interviews with uh, scholars on uh, the horror film and the contemporary softcore sort of adults-only video. But I'm particularly excited about uh, something I'm doing with the podcast. I'm teaching a seminar on Hong Kong cinema right now, and uh, each of my students is going to be interviewed about their uh, semester's project film. And uh, so we'll have uh, interviews with uh, some of my film students on films such as uh, The Untold Story, John Woo's Bullet in the Head, and uh, a bunch of other great uh, Hong Kong films. The uh, the first, the second of Chang Che's Five Deadly Venoms film, a great uh, martial arts film called Flag of Iron. So I'm very, very excited about uh, getting some of the great work that my students are doing uh, out there in the podcast sphere. I'm also starting a blog on gender and sexuality in the media called Not and Gender. That's K-N-O-T-A-N-D-G-E-N-D-E-R. Not and Gender blogspot.com. Feminist Musings on Sexuality and the Media. And so far, the first two essays that I've done on there uh, are on pornography, one on Annette Haven and the 1982, uh, 1981 movie, uh, A Thousand One Erotic Nights, and another one on Cafe Flesh. Uh, but I'll be expanding the focus of that to write on a whole range of, of issues about gender and sexuality in the media. And I'm continuing to work on a book project uh, tentatively titled From Beavis and Butthead to Tea Party Nation, Dumb White Guy Politics and Culture in America. And the problem with Dumb White Guy Politics and Culture in America is is there, there can never be a final chapter. Dumb white guys seem to reinvent themselves in, in new, more flowing and spectacular robes uh, every time I uh, uh, log into Yahoo News, it seems. Just to sum up, I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. The Fox News audience is millions of exhausted roosters. Well, thank you again, Kevin and Carol, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. 
I'm glad that people uh, can enjoy a podcast where sometimes the discussions and interviews can surpass the run times of the films. I know it's actually more than some people can handle, but to you, the brave and the bold, I salute you and I implore you to keep smiling. Though your heart is aching Smile even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky You'll get by If you smile through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe You'll see the sun come shining through for you. Light up your face with gladness. Hide every trace of sadness. Although a tear Maybe ever so near That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying You'll find that life is still worthwhile That's the time you must keep on trying. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you just smile If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.